Next meeting, Baton meeting, 10th of November. We've got a trustees meeting on the 3rd. Won't make you have that. 10th of November, and it is about the doctrine of war. Of course, Jesus is a pacifist. Should Christians be pacifists? Should we have war? Should we support our country? All that stuff. And why do we have wars? So that would be that. I'm hoping to finish at three so that um, you can have a cup of tea before you go and we don't want to clash with the guys that are um, also in here. And I'll be going. I'm wasting your time. Um, so that's it, I think. If you want ministry, as I say, please toot them up here. If you want ministry, toot them up at 3 o'clock. Anybody who wants prayer, does she look pointed in a certain direction? <laughs> Nothing to be ashamed of. Just that my tripwire will go over if you try to make for the door. See me first, yeah. that's it. Get your toe in the door at three o'clock, that's it. I shall attempt to finish at three. No, we'll finish at three, because otherwise we won't finish at all. But the notes, you'll get everything on the notes, but the reason I wanted it uh, recorded this morning was that I knew it was coming straight, hot and strong, uh, fresh bread, and so this you can have, um, which is tame really compared. <laughs> So, Matthew 5:27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And we looked at it and said that the you included rich, poor, educated and uneducated, king and slave, male and female, young and old, married and unmarried, and no exceptions. And there are two words used throughout scripture to deal with sexual sins. They are adultery and fornication. Adultery is defined as voluntary sexual relations between a married person and someone other than their spouse. Fornication, on the other hand, refers to sexual relations between a man and a woman who are not married. These two terms are also inclusive as expressions of right and wrong and perverted sexual relationships and activities such as homosexuality. So I did say that I wanted to sort of press what is at stake when we go over the line into something like this. It's not just an aberration or a need that we have. There's more in it than that. And Satan would not let you know uh, what it is. It's your inheritance that is at stake. And our inheritance unfolds as we walk in the statutes and commandments that God has laid down for us as we grow in Christ-likeness. The goal of the Christian walk is to become like Jesus and do the things he did. There's a greater works ministry out there for us. Along the way, however, one of the things we will experience is what I would call test commands. God said don't do it and waits to see what we will do. And the first example was Adam in the garden. He did it, didn't he? 
if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, it's so clear. Paul says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom? They will not reign and rule in life. They will not come into everything Jesus died to give them. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Funny that that one's first. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and that is what some of you were. I certainly was. I was a drunkard and I was an, an adulterer, to name but two. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And as I've said to you before, you will not lose your salvation. God will not love you any less if you completely ignore this message. What you stand to lose is your inheritance, part of which is your usefulness to the kingdom of God here and now and the rewards hereafter. You cannot have rewards done for the deeds done in the body if you haven't done any. So when you stand before the beamer seat of Christ, which is the rewards place, you won't have anything to be tested in the fire because you've been busy doing what the world does and wasting your time. That's why you'll always hear me saying that time is the only commodity you have got. You cannot get time back. So one of the things that determine gain or loss of our inheritance in this life is sexual immorality. As I've said, it's about rewards. It's in reigning in this life. This is about, these are the things that are your inheritance, spiritual strength, victory over the enemy, and knowing what is the enemy and what is the flesh. Knowing who's doing what to whom. I mean, people often come to me and say, oh, the enemy's done this and the enemy's done It's nothing of the sort. It's their flesh. It's their uncrucified flesh that is the cause of the problem. So you, your inheritance is spiritual strength, victory over the enemy, maturity, coming into an increasingly trusting place in God, material sufficiency, health, walking free of the pollution in the world, and enjoying righteousness, peace and joy and so much more in this life. The psalmist said, No good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is upright. That's Psalm 84.11. But the principle here is that if we have these ungoverned desires over which we cannot rule, God can't trust us with spiritual treasures. If we cannot possess our own vessel, delay gratification, we are showing ourselves unfit for kingdom service. It's basic stuff. Paul says, lest I be cast away as reprobate. He says he beats his body to keep it under subjection. Lest he be cast away as reprobate, which is found not to have passed the test. It's the same as with money. Jesus says, if you can't be trusted with earthly things, who will entrust you with heavenly things? That's Luke 16:11. God doesn't change his way with us. One of the things that Graham was saying was, Really, we've got to get back to the Word. 
because we cannot any longer travel on the froth and the bubble of the renewal movement without any substance underneath it. Ministry is fine, yes we need it, but we must encompass everything, not just the sweet bits that we want, that actually minister to our eros, minister to our fallen nature. And it does us no favours. There are no degrees of sin, but sexual sin has a special thing about it. It defiles. Uh, there are times when, uh, when I've had to hear things from people, because people have to come and confess to me so that I can say to them, receive your forgiveness and cleansing, receive it. There is something about being able to listen, because it says in James, confess your faults to one another that you might be healed. I have to ask Joyce to, to, to wipe off the defilement of my spirit because my spirit gets defiled by what I hear. I'm not getting involved in it, but the hearing of it defiles me. So a definition of defile, which I found amazing when I looked into it. One, it's to corrupt or ruin something. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man, John Bunyan said in Pilgrim's Progress, 1678. So it's something new, isn't it? Second definition is to damage somebody's reputation or good name. And the third one, which is a religious connotation, is to destroy the sanctity of something, to make a holy or sacred thing or place no longer fit for ceremonial use. When you join your body to an unbeliever or in, in an ungodly relationship, you are defiling the temple of God. It's as clear as that. That's what happens. There is a defilement taking place. You don't know it, your partner probably doesn't know it, but Satan well knows it. And you'll hear in a minute uh, where the, the, the root of the word to, to, to uh, defile comes from. And the fifth one is to deprive a woman of her virginity, to be the first man to have sexual intercourse with a woman, usually outside marriage. And an alteration of it, influenced by an obsolete word meaning to be foul, of French defouler, to trample, um, or to trample underfoot, is, is, the, is what the word defile comes from. But interestingly, Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Greek says of defile, the word moluno, M-O-L-U-N-O, properly denotes to, dis, to besmear, as with mud or filth, to befoul. Interesting. But there is the root of defile, to smear. So we say, let's go for a dirty weekend, we're talking about the right thing. Satan knows what he's saying when he talks about dirty weekends. Let's go and smear ourselves with mud. It puts a whole different complexion on the thing, doesn't it, when you're going off for a dirty wing, not half so romantic when you put it like that, having a mud bath. So we're living in a day when the whole of society says there's nothing wrong with it as long as there are two consenting adults. Beloved, we are called to be different. And there is another old-fashioned word called holiness. Perhaps we'll do something on that one of these days because I don't know what you think holiness means but it actually means separation. We are called to be separated from something. If you remember the scripture I first started with was come out from among them and be separate. And you're separated out from the mud and filth of the world to 
God. That is the separation. We're meant to be separated from something to something. Separated from the world and its ways to God and his ways. And God has set laws in this universe of his and gravity is one of them. If I drop my pen or jump out of the window, I and the pen will go downwards and eventually hit the earth. And he's also set spiritual laws in place. As a man sows, so shall he reap. And this is as immovable as God himself. He can't go against his own word. What you sow, you will reap. If you sow sexual promiscuity and lust, we will reap infection and eventually death in our bodies and the bodies with those with whom we've had sexual con- contact. Venereal disease and epidemic AIDS is just one example. I mean, I felt so sad for that young man, I don't know how old he is, now diagnosed with AIDS. And if we haven't got it yet, it's just a matter of time. Sowing and reaping, there's a law in place. You can't play with fire and not get burned. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes and not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? What you sow, you will reap. The sad part about it is that we have become captive to our culture. The church's morals are very little different from those in the world. And we seek largely the same things. We do not live as the beloved of God, obeying him out of his love for us and ours for him. We are not so concerned with being conformed to the image of Christ as being conformed to the image of the next door neighbour. And God forbid we should stand out by being different. We have just enough religion to get us to heaven. When mankind gives away God-given authority in any area, the demonic will move in and rule. And the result of this is that we will come under the influence of the principality or power that has been given the ground. A simple example is that if we give in to lust and watch pornography on the internet, the demonic will move in and we will find ourselves unable to stop even though we now want to. We are enslaved, compelled and driven to continue going deeper and deeper into this corrupting behaviour. We've given away our authority as surely as Adam gave away his in the garden. It's all about getting back, regaining our inner territory, which was our summer school was all about. Just tickled the surface there. If you do have a problem in this area, and it's enslaving, compelling and driving, If you've tried to stop, you've prayed and you've fasted and sought the Lord and still there's no improvement, you can be sure you're looking at the demonic. And as I said, there will be ministry time from three o'clock onwards, so do come and, and get prayer because there's no condemnation. Sexual sin is particularly damaging to us because it's the only sin in which your body and that of another are joined. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and 13, Paul says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's, he's got the, his desires governed, not ungoverned desires. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And in 1 Corinthians 6.18 he says, Flee 
sexual immorality. I meant to look that up to see it, it's an imperative. Run away from it. Switch got legs thought. Run in the opposite direction. Every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. As soon as this joining is other than that which God ordained, the one flesh relationship of husband and wife, you've moved out from under God's authority to under demonic authority and he has every right to harass you because you're in his territory. In Psalm 120 verse 5, David is lamenting that he's dwelling on the edge of the Christian walk. Um, if I had a map here, Jerusalem would be there, as it were. And then um, Meshech and Kedar are south and north of Jerusalem. And he's saying, I'm dwelling between two cultures. I'm between the devil and the deep blue sea. And that is the way we are. We are between two cultures. The two that he was between were like Meshech and Kedar. One that were a warlike people and the other were lustful and self-indulgent. That's exactly where we find ourselves today and we're captive to the culture. The world says, if it feels good, do it. And the word says, beloved, don't. We're pulled both ways. And I would venture to say that we most often end up doing things the same way as the world does all around us. All around us. As I've looked at this, and particularly as I looked at it this morning and I saw the difference between Eros and Agape and it's like God just gave, showed me so much that I thought you can't get this all in in one day because there's this whole difference between where the church itself finds itself and mostly the church is living in Eros it's not living in Agape standards is the same as the world out there that's why when you bring a word on morality it's not it's, wouldn't be received in many places because you're being old fashioned now uh, anything that talks of actually straightening the life out it's sloppy agape it's totally sloppy and it's not kind because it's not good for us as uh, that lovely thing said he didn't make uh, ten suggestions he made ten commandments and they were instructions um, they weren't pointing the finger, they were instructions on how to keep yourself healthy, wealthy and wise. If Israel had followed them, they'd have been alright. So, all mankind's sin, sexual sin is the one that affects him most. It penetrates his body and brings death and disease with it. Sexual relationships make the two one, they become one flesh and what is passed, what one has is passed across to the other. We saw that when we looked at the soul ties. All sorts of things are passed down that soul tie as the sexual act takes place. I explained to you that, that you're not just having intercourse with one person. If that person has had two or multiple experiences, Every person they went with affects you at the moment of penetration. And it doesn't go away. Those ties need to be cut and it goes for the man as well as the woman. He's picked up stuff if the woman has been into things as well. And it's the quickest way to defilement that I know. Not only will your body be defiled, but your spirit is defiled also. 
And while I was preparing this message, it came clearly that God cannot forgive what we haven't confessed. I mean, it sounds obvious. But if we haven't actually said, Father, I've done this thing, I'm, I'm ever so sorry. Please, will you forgive me? And of course he will. Um, and I actually had a conversation with two young Christians out of which arose the fact that they had not realised that unconfessed sin was sin unforgiven. Simple as that. You cannot forgive what we haven't confessed. Um, it was a sobering moment for us all. Because when I came to, to Christ, I came in such a way that for the first two years I was repenting of my sins every time I went into a meeting. But the first two years in the back row, passing the bucket because I was crying so much. Because he revealed my sins to me one at a time and I repented for them one at a time. The Anglican confession won't cut it. Oh, Father, we have all sinned. Lovely in general. Never mind about I've just lost my rag with my husband over there and whatever. We've all sinned. It's a more general thing. No, it isn't. We do them one at a time and singularly. So if you had sexual relationships before you became a Christian, outside the confines of marriage, even with the man you eventually married, it needs to be confessed and repented of, and the ungodly soul time needs to be cut. Because the fact that you married him at the end of the day is neither here nor there, it was an act of worship to the other guy while it was outside of marriage. So go on doing business with God if you are and you'll have an opportunity very shortly uh, to have ministry for anything he brings to the surface. It's nothing to be ashamed of. 1 John 1 9, it's 1 John 1 9 in action. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. There's a quote uh, again from Chip Ingram. Even in the charismatic church, Christians who really do know God often live by the same standards as the world, seeking exactly the same things as the world does. Unconsciously, we go about intimate relationships Hollywood style and about money matters Wall Street style. We approach parenting with whatever techniques we think will work or happen to be the current child-rearing fad. We have so segmented and compartmentalised our lives that our behaviour reflects that we listen more to the world than to God's word. We have exchanged God's prescription for life with the world with disastrous and painful results. Even the divorce rate among Christians is about the same as among unbelievers. And that's a paraphrase from his book that I showed you this morning. And then running through quickly, uh, the relationships, Hollywood style, I put it up this morning, I expect you've already taken the notes of it. Uh, steps one through four, ending up failing and starting all over again. Relationships in the 21st century are rather like Kleenex tissues blown through. Commitment is an almost unused word. In our culture, physical appearance and sex appeal are paramount and regrettably it is little different in the church. Our sexuality is a God-given gift. It's meant to be one of the most joyful and satisfying elements of a marriage relationship. That's how God intended it. Marriage is his idea. He's a matchmaker. 
is not only his provision for procreation of the human race, but the basis of the family relationship which in itself God ordained. Marriage and the home is the basic structure of society. That is why it's such a target for destruction from Satan. He delights to destroy that which God has ordained, to demolish the order which God placed within his universe. The destruction of marriage and sexuality is a satanic strategy, beloved. What I was saying this morning, what God showed me, it is seduction in the church. That is what it's after, seducing you away from your beloved, from the one who loves you with a passion. That's what he's after. Anything to seduce you away from wholehearted commitment to Jesus. So he undermines marriage relationships, causes havoc with emotional responses from childhood through youth and into adulthood. And he carries on the relentless attack to destroy God's created order in any way he can. Hence things like homosexuality. Everyone, and unisex, that was all the rage a few years ago. Everybody looked the same. You couldn't tell whether they were fellas or girls. Some of the girls were so flat-chested, you just couldn't tell. You know, some of the fellas have got long hair. And, oh. Psalm 119 starts in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way? How can he keep himself pure? And the psalmist goes on to show exactly what, how that can be done. But first, as Paul says, there has to be a willing mind. Unless we're actually willing to let go of things and change, nobody in the world can change us from it, you know. No one can set us free from that which we still love. If we still love a lifestyle of doing whatever it was we were doing before, no, no amount of prayer ministry will make the slightest bit of difference. There has to be the set of the will. The choice doesn't say you have to be able to do it. It says you have to be able to make the choice to change the lifestyle. Because as you make the choice, you're bringing yourself in under the Holy Spirit's control. You've surrendered those desires to him and he will enable you to stay pure. That's his role. He loves it. He loves his job because it's to keep you that's what he's come for to keep you but first you have to surrender that voluntarily to him he won't come and take it from you God never asks us to do something without giving us the ability to do it be holy as I am holy is a benediction not an impossible command be separate he says come out from among them and be separate be holy, come out from among them, be separate, don't touch the unclean thing. He leans over us, breathes his spirit on us and says, be like me. Here's how you can do it. In this context, in the second book of Corinthians, he was speaking to people who had just come out from the foulest, because to be Corinthianised, as I think I said when we were doing homosexuality, was to be debauched. They was into everything. Front, back and sideways. They were into everything. <laughs> I mean, you see. I mean, they just were. So they knew what, he knew what he was talking to. These fish were caught, but they hadn't been cleaned yet. 
And so he was saying, now don't go back into what you've just come out from. Come out, stay out, don't mix your body with that for prostitute. Be holy, be separated unto me. We're meant to be different. We're meant to be a light on a hill, illuminating the safe path. We are never going to reach the world out there if we don't have an understanding of what the gospel really is. Uh, spoke to someone the other day, a Christian for 20 years, and he had the four square gospel. And what it was, was he knew what it was that he was a sinner, and he knew he was born again, and he knew that Jesus died for his sins, and that was about the size of it. And that was as far as he'd gone, blessed heart, in 20 years. Because I needed to know where he was coming from. Uh, four square, right? Four square gospel. And we get these packed, packed little expressions that we use, you know? It doesn't mean a thing. You can be 30, 40, 50 years a Christian, but you can end up being like these little pairs here, because you've never actually understood what it is to be able to bring forth fruit like that. And this is what God is redressing the balance of in these days right now. The Word has got to come back to it. It's got to come into our systems. We've got to start living it. We'll see change. People will see us and say, what's happened to you? What has happened to you? Well, let me tell you. Unless we are a living, breathing example of the power of God, we're giving, us no, giving them nothing at all. Nothing at all. And if we don't understand that we've been lifted out of one kingdom and placed into another, our lifestyle will remain exactly the same. We'll be fornicating, living with people, doing the same things, getting divorced, flying about, absolutely everything, the same as the unbeliever except on Sundays we go to church. I don't know what our neighbours think of us because when we first went to stay where we are we went to church every Sunday regular clockwork, tambourine on one, under one arm Bible under the other and then suddenly it all stopped <laughs> so I've got a bit of a puzzlement there the other thing is the exchange at the cross some insurance policies these days have a new for old clause you know if you break that which you your old one, they replace it with a new and that is the exchange that was made at the cross new for old we have actually got new within us Paul says in Corinthians and such were some of you we were like that I was like that I was an adulteress I was um, drunk most of the time I was racketing about doing all sorts of things and regrettably there were men that I went with I can't remember the names of the cases but I was like that I'm not like that now and I wasn't from the moment that I realised that I shouldn't be doing it the thing is we get to choose choice is ours will you have abundance or poverty live in the flesh or the spirit instant gratification or will you wait for the Lord to bring that which is the best for you. Takes discipline, don't like that word. Takes self-control, don't want any of that either. Instant coffee, pop it in, mix it up, can I have it now? Well, the answer is no. And you know, we always say God's uh, not worried about time. We think Concord, he thinks camel. 
and that is the difference between us. He's agricultural, he plants a seed, he waits for it to grow. We plant the seed, dig it up the next day, find out why well, it's not six foot tall. We want to know why it's not happening. Quick, quick, quick. Got to change the mindset. Come into a greater understanding of what happened at the cross and the choice with which we are presented moment by moment, day by day. So though I'm actually speaking on morality today, it's mixed with the great heart of God for his people. Sin has been dealt with. Jesus has taken the wrath of God, which was rightly on us, and we can walk free. But Paul says, don't use your liberty as an occasion to sin. We must teach the whole counsel of God. This is a love relationship we're in. We want to obey God because of whose we are. We want to be father pleasers because of his great love for us. People say to me, I want to love God more, but I can't. Well, no, of course you can't. Because first you need to learn to be a receiver. Because it takes God to love God. So you have to open your heart to receive from him so that you can love him in return. It's all cyclical. Comes from him, goes back to him. Cycles. But we can determine to be father pleasers. Jesus said, I only do what the Father wants me to do. That's the Father pleaser speaking. If you gain from this teaching, take it back with you and bless someone and set them free. And as I said before, if you need to do some confessional repentance, then do that too. If you need ungodly soul ties cut, we can do that. Repentance is ongoing, and we should be daily doing it, as I said before. God is a matchmaker. From Genesis 2, he's been making matches. Has it ever occurred to you? He declared that it's not good for man to be alone, so he brings the woman alongside. And paraphrasing it, Adam goes, oh, with his CD. One man, one woman. And he will present his son with a bride. Notice he didn't present man to man or woman to woman. He made man from man and woman, both in his own image. In the image of God he created them. This gives mankind dignity and honour that has been almost totally lost. Satan seeks to degrade mankind by feeding lies and distortion, by offering gratification of our flesh, and his whole idea and strategy is to subvert God's plan for your life and cause you to compromise what God has said. Same old question, did God really say? It's called trading. Trading your inheritance for a mess of pottage. Adam traded dominion in the garden for a life, the very presence of God for separation. We never realise the extent of the cost of the trade until we've made it. And then as someone said to me at lunchtime or during the break, it makes me angry. Because when you realise what the cost is of what you've traded, you get angry. Ask Adam, ask Esau, both of them, they traded their inheritance for fleshly desires which turned to dust in their hands. 
So God's a matchmaker. He's been making matches since the garden. If you're married, it's God's match. You're one flesh, bone of your husband's bone, flesh of his flesh. If you're single and looking for God's match for your life, well wait, it's there. Unless he's told you he wants you to be single, in which case he will enable you to be that. Marriage is God's pattern for what he's about to do at the end of the age. Present a bride to his son. Revelation 19 talks of pure bright linen. And the bride, Revelation tells us, as is the subject of this study, has made herself ready. The bride is called upon to do something. And at the end of the ages, I've already intimated there's going to be a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The pressure to trade your inheritance in Christ Jesus grows daily as the enemy bombards us with seductions of his allurements. So what I'm saying may save you, your family and others from a lot of grief if you'll take it away and prayerfully consider it. Whenever we talk about immorality, we're usually looking at it in a sexual context, but it's a legitimate need being met in an illegitimate way. We're talking about going to some other source of comfort than God to get our needs met. He made us sexual beings, but as I've said, banged on about today, but within the confines of marriage, not outside it, and certainly not with the same sex. Sex and sexuality are an important part of who we are, but don't major on minors. Life is more than meeting our physical and emotional needs. What we're looking at when we see lust, promiscuity, loveless marriages, extramarital sex and divorce, is that love bent towards the creature, our old friend Eros. Self-love, love with a hook, trying to fulfil itself through someone else. The girls, they hated my diagram of Eros, the Eros snake eating itself, and they always wanted me to turn it round because they don't like the look of it, because it is kind of so home to us that that is what we do. We're always, how does it affect me? How can I get what I want out of this situation? And it's eating itself, it's consumed with self and self-gratification. Girls, your husband, your boyfriend, will never meet your need for unconditional love. He isn't meant to. If you really love me, you would... He's likely to say, if you really love me, you would let me go to bed with you. That's the way it usually comes. But if your love for your nearest and dearest has got a hook in it, you need to repent. God is the only one who can make up the love deficit in every one of us. You notice I said, repent, not confess. You've got to change the way you look at things. You've got to change your way of thinking. Ask him to straighten your hook. Our job is to let him love us. To learn to become the beloved of God. To gaze on him as he gazes on you. 
And this is where actually you see the crossover between the healing ministry and these passing the baton meetings because it's only as we're healed and we understand the rejections and hurts we begin to believe that we're objects of God's overwhelmingly passionate love for us. So we begin to receive that love into ourselves and allow him to fill the holiness. And we become the object of his adoration as he intended. I can sit here and say to you that God's absolutely soppy with love over me, you know. He's absolutely plastered over me. But he doesn't let me get away with anything. Because for my good he wouldn't. And I don't want him to. I enjoy his correction. Because then I know that I'm really loved. Whom the Lord loves, he corrects and chastens every son whom he receives. I want to be a son. So I'm up for the correction. I'm not running away from the rod of God if he has to use it. So as we become the right person, we cease looking for the right person and our focus changes from ourselves to him. If you attempt to build intimacy with someone before you've done the hard work of becoming whole and healthy yourself, the relationship will be an attempt to fill your own love need. Love with a hook. And as I started off with this morning, God calls it digging your own systems. You don't hold any water and it is doomed to failure. Jeremiah 2.13 God's prescription for lasting relationships is exactly the opposite to the one that we saw this morning in Hollywood. The key is to be complete before you enter into a relationship. When I was first born again, I had to tell the man with whom I was involved at the time that I had to end the relationship with him because I'd become a Christian. And the only words that came out of my mouth were, I'm complete. He fit. I'm not... I can see it now, I had a, a through lounge and lights at both ends and he was six foot four inches tall and as he walked up and down the lounge these lights were swinging away and I'm thinking what have I said making him go like that? I said I don't need you. I hadn't realised that. I realised afterwards. I no longer need you to complete me. So examine the relationships you're in. Do you need that person to complete you? Because if you do, you're in a wrong relationship. It should complement who you are and you should complement who they are because you're complete in God. You don't go to them to make up the missing piece in yourself. Only God can do that. So when you want to build intimacy with a person before your identity is fully in Christ and you feel strong and secure in him, you'll be expecting that poor person to do something for you that he or she cannot do. You'll be loving them with that Eros hook. In other words, when your identity is in Christ, you don't need others in the same way. You don't need to perform to be accepted and they don't have to come through in order for your ultimate needs to be met. The world says, set your hope on this person to come through for you. Make this person the centre of your existence. And God says, I am the centre of your existence. Make me central and your love will change from Eros to Agape. In one of Graham's books, he's got a little prayer and he says, he asks the Lord to 
transform his eros into agape and I thought I wonder where we got that from then and so of course I said to the Lord something along the line but I'd like to know where we got that from so he leads me to Bob Mumford's teaching which is where Graham got it from <laughs> I'm trotting along behind Graham Cook <laughs> That's a good prayer. Father, turn my ear off into agape. Good prayer. As we saw on that nasty little diagram, eros is self-referential. It seeks to possess, acquire and control. It looks for its own satisfaction in the object upon which it sets its gaze. But agape is the self-giving love of God. It seeks only the best for the object of its desire. So if you found someone telling you that they would be better off without you, your response would be to let them go because it would be best for them. You wouldn't try to hold on to them because it would be best for you. So if you're having difficulty letting go of your children and allowing them to become who they should be without you, guess what you've got? Eros. You're holding on to them for your own sake. And Eros can raise its ugly head even in our relationship with God. Because we go from receiving from him, we can find ourselves demanding of him. And this can happen particularly when a move of God seems to cease and we try to work things up to get the feeling back again. Bob Mumford calls this raping God, trying to get something out of him. Even our worship gets louder and louder and louder, trying to make something happen. And we've gone from being the object of his desire to desiring something from him and trying to get it by any means so that we are satisfied. And this can include things like fasting. I often question it when people are saying, oh, unless I'm going on a fast, and I'm thinking, what are you trying to get out of God then? Because they're fasting because they actually want to get something out of God. If I fast, perhaps he'll agree with what I actually want to do. No, he won't. He won't change his mind. If he said no, he means no. Fasting, you can fast and all you'll get is thin. Because you actually won't get anything if you're trying to twist God's arm. And it's a repentance issue. There's a very popular book a few years ago. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And it was subtitled, How to Get Your Needs Met Through People. Eros. love with a hook we've actually been taught to expect from others what God alone can give us and in so doing we're unable to appreciate the wonders of human love when we're walking in love as God intends us to do and we looked at the reverse of the Hollywood model instead of looking for the right person become the right person instead of falling in love, walk in love look at you busy Instead of fixing your hopes and dreams on someone else, fix your hope on God and seek to please him through the relationship. And if failure occurs, repeat steps one through three. Same result on the fourth step. Both recognise human failure. But the question is, Lord, am I walking in love or am I expecting something from my spouse or my boyfriend that they can't possibly give me? Am I moving in Eros or continuing in Agape? Quick word on conscience. 
I didn't think we actually needed teaching on what was right and wrong, but someone corrected me and said, we do. I didn't think you needed me to tell you that watching pornography was wrong, adultery was wrong, and sex outside marriage is wrong. In our hearts we do know, because even the heathen know, because we're all born with something called a conscience. It's a God awareness of right and wrong. Think back to childhood for a minute. You knew when you'd done something wrong. And in the biscuit tin, when mum came along and she told you not to get your hand in the biscuit tin, you knew you'd done something wrong. And it applies particularly to a child who's been abused and told it was all right. They know it's not right. And that causes confusion. In ministry, that causes a child confusion. The adult is saying, what I'm doing is all right. And the child knows in their heart it isn't. The word conscience comes from two words, con meaning with and science meaning knowledge. Our conscience provides us with basic knowledge about God. And the Bible says every man is without excuse. The fact is that we can sear our consciences by frequently ignoring the warnings. Dangerous place to be. When we're born again, our conscience is reawakened to right and wrong and most of us will agree that a lot of stuff went soon after conversion. The remarkable thing is though, it sneaks back. We get sloppy. Just this once. No one will know. Ever done that one? Some people have a weak conscience and the believers at Corinth, for an example, they got in a tizzy about meat sacrificed to idols. Their conscience was weak and it was still functioning in the old thinking. And one more thing is that discipline delayed is not discipline overlooked. God's delay is not denial. In Ecclesiastes 8, 11 and 12, it says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, sometimes God's kids think they've got away with it, and then they're encouraged to do it again and do it more. Although only a sinner does evil a hundred times in his life, I still know that it will be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. Sometimes we do things that violate God and his word and we may do it ignorantly or intentionally or by mistake, but for whatever reason we do something that violates something in him. And this is a thing about God that he doesn't judge it on the spot. I'm talking now about something that we know that is wrong. So I touch the electric socket and nothing happens. I poke my finger in it and then the fifth time I get a shock. That's the principle behind it. God doesn't judge straight away. When the Lord starts dealing with you about these things, you want to look back three days and God says, get serious, let's look back three years, five years. These things are cumulative. He lets us run like, you know, my dog had this long lead that unraveled like that and he'd go off like a good one and suddenly that lead would catch him and he'd swing up and do a somersault. That's what God does with us. He lets us run. I've often said to the Lord, oh, why didn't you stop me sooner? You know, I would have rather been stopped sooner. But he has his reasons for letting you get away with it a bit. The pastor in adultery, he thinks he's getting away with it. No one seems to be aware. The congregation is still there, hanging on his every word, probably think he's such a great man of God that God overlooks what he's doing. No, no, no. 
because a sentence is not speedily executed we think one that God didn't see it two he didn't care three we got away with it I was out with this girl but I still had the anointing young man you've just got yourself in trouble sooner or later God will judge and discipline the action that's Hebrews 12 whom the Lord loves he chases don't think that I'm being fanciful about these things because immorality is rife in the body of Christ and I'm not judging I'm making a plea for the bride to make herself ready for her bridegroom I've actually had a case recently where someone had been having an affair with their pastor for two years and wondered why the wife of the pastor wasn't very friendly with him obviously such a man of God I don't know quite where to start no condemnation but give us a break but it's, it's just it's a thermometer to show you what it's like out there trading I wanted to talk about trading trading is when you allow the devil to make an exchange when you do a deal with darkness and trading is not complicated the devil approaches you and says I'll make you a deal you lay off that spiritual stuff and I'll show you a good time it isn't always as clear as that it can come why don't you live a little you are living such a narrow life you know you've only got one life you know you're missing out you're lonely God said it wasn't good for man to be alone what are you going to do about it and what are you going to do you're going to you're about to trade you're about to trade something what you have for what's being offered there's an exchange <laughs> so there's going to be an exchange this is so important you're trading what you have for what's being offered the devil made a trade in the garden he traded Satan's life for God's truth he said to Adam if you eat that you'll die Satan says you won't die clear Adam traded and when he traded he lost something and he couldn't get it back and he started to die so the list of the things which the devil can trade off fornication sexual activity outside of marriage adultery sexual activity with someone other than your marriage partner idolatry house, car, holidays, money filling your own blanks four walls and knickknacks on the shelf adultery, effeminacy, stealing impurity, sensuality, outbursts of anger, factions and envy and sound familiar don't they, they're in Galatians eh? there is more to sexual sin than forgiveness, you always can have that there is more to an idolatrous situation than forgiveness there is something more in dispute than just being forgiven, you stand in danger of losing something forgiveness is always available but you forfeit something and that something is your inheritance in Christ snakes and ladders like up the ladder and down a snake it never fails you lose something what you lose first off is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost no Christian can be happy willfully going against God's stated word and the whole reason for the teaching today is that something is at stake as I said before I'll say again it's not your salvation you can't lose that this is about inheritance for us 
here and now and rewards later. Five things that will gain, preserve and enable you to inherit and experience your inheritance of these. The first one is suffering and denial. Deny yourself the things which are forbidden. There are times that if, when God loves you, he'll give you the opportunity to suffer for what you believe. When Esau came in and he was hungry, he was suffering and he parted with his inheritance to fill his tummy. He did not have the ability to control his own appetite and so lost his birthright and he couldn't get it back, though he sought it with tears. That's the reason many men trade their inheritance for a fleeting sexual affair. They don't know how to deny themselves. They don't have enough hold on God or themselves to deny themselves something that is clearly forbidden. You learn how to suffer and he'll teach you how to reign. You learn how to deny yourself in any given situation. We learn how to control and discipline these appetites because that is where the danger ground is. And that is the job of the Holy Spirit to help you do those things. But first, there has to be a willing mind. Number two is constant effort. Most people think, come into the Christian life, learn a few Bible verses, pray in the Spirit, and it'll all come right. Sometimes it's hard, really hard. There are hard patches. You're not backslidden, it's hard. It requires endurance and faith. And after you've done all, Paul says, stand. Moral behaviour, doctrinal soundness, proper response to spiritual authority, even when you don't agree. Constant effort. Repeated choices. Lord, I choose you against everything else. You can't do that once and for all. The choice is repeated moment by moment. Tomorrow's not yours yet. I repeatedly choose God against myself until it becomes a habit pattern. It takes time and effort. Integrity. Proverbs 11.3 The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the falseness of the treacherous will destroy them. By integrity I mean wholeness, the answer of a good conscience. For example, when I was born again, I couldn't lie for my boss. And that made him absolutely furious, nearly lost the job. But I couldn't violate my conscience, which was suddenly awake. If anything is violating your conscience, you can't do it. Don't do it. Integrity means there are just going to be times when you're going to be faced with truth and it will cost you, maybe even your job. If you do violate your conscience, it's easier next time and the next time, and the next time. That's called getting a seared conscience. So it's suffering, constant effort, repeated choices, and integrity. If you get these things lined up in your thinking, you will find that God will lead you into your inheritance. He doesn't bring you all at once, because an inheritance hastily gained is a disappointment at the end, says that in Proverbs. He'll bring it to you line by line. He is faithful. I have got a bit on marriage, but I'll pop that on the CD if I can afterwards, if you can do that. So I'll finish there because we're just missing to o'clock. Thank you.
Uh, just a word to marriage then. The wife's body is for the husband and the husband's body is for the wife. 1 Corinthians 7.4 The wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. The Lord commands married partners to fulfill their sexual duties to their spouse. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife. This is not about I don't fancy him or her anymore. This is about fulfilling the obligation you have towards the other partner. What happens if the husband won't respond to his wife's sexual advance? Her sexual drive becomes frustrated and she's tempted towards sexual immorality. What happens if she won't respond to him? The same thing. She finds him engaging the internet site on pornography or having an affair and wonders why. The Bible teaches that sexuality in marriage is both a delight as well as a duty. A duty is a moral or legal responsibility of obligation that arises from one's position. It is the duty of each marital partner to meet the sex drive of their partner. Note the Bible reveals that the duty is towards the spouse. The husband has a duty towards his wife and the wife has a duty towards the husband. The thought behind these words isn't that the husband's duty is to have intercourse with his wife if he wants it, but it is his duty to respond to his wife if she wants to have intercourse, and vice versa. God sovereignly takes something away from you at the point of marriage and gives it as a heavenly wedding present to your spouse. He doesn't ask if he can take it and he doesn't ask you if you want it, Sovereignly the Lord takes the authority you have had over your own body and removes it from you as long as you live. He gives the right over your body to your spouse. He has made total provision for your sexual needs to be fulfilled right there in the context of the marriage bed. Your spouse does not have to beg for his or her conjugal rights. They are their rights by the sovereign act of God. In the light of the understanding of this scripture, there should never come a time when either party within the marriage relationship is sexually frustrated. Depriving one another should only come as a result of the agreement of both parties in order that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Corinthians 7.5 The word deprive literally translated means to rob or defraud. See to it then that you are not guilty of robbing or defrauding your husband or wife of your body which is rightfully theirs. Sexual intimacy in marriage is to be the norm, not the exception. God's prescription for sex and sexuality may feel as though it's killing you at first. It is. It's changing your eros love into agape. For fuller understanding on the difference between Eros and Agape, we recommend that you request the CDs produced at this Baton meeting. The Lord changed the agenda and these notes were only used in the afternoon session and they therefore do not reflect the full content of the day. And as an addendum, following the meeting it was possible to have ministry. If you were not present and find that on reading these notes or listening to the CDs, you have need to confess and repent of past or present behaviour, you may find the following of assistance to you. Number one, come clean, tell God exactly what you've done. This is confession, agreeing with God that you have a problem or have done something wrong. Number two, 
Accept responsibility for your sin. Don't rationalise it or blame shift. Face it. Number three, accept his forgiveness on his terms, not yours. Don't try to bargain with him. Number four, ask him to forgive you and cleanse you. 1 John 1 9 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us as we confess our sins. Number five, ask him to set you free from the consequences of your sin, including the demonic. This is self-deliverance. Number six, forgive yourself and walk free. Recommended reading to go with this teaching is Personal Holiness in Times of Temptation by Bruce H. Wilkinson and Love, Sex and Lasting Relationships by Chip Ingram. If you have any problems getting hold of these books, I'd be grateful if you'd approach me and I'll get them for you. God bless you and thank you for listening.